This morning, if you are taking notes, one word title of our sermon this morning, it is called Transformation. Transformation. We'll continue in the study of the Gospel of John this morning. We're in John chapter 2. And before we open up the text together, let's pray together. Father, we have come, just as I just said, to come into this place not to hear the opinions of any man. But God, we're here to study your truth. And God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would reveal yourself more to us this morning. That you would draw us nearer to Christ. Help us understand your truth and help us to respond to your truth. And we pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. This morning again, we are in John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to John 2. Or you can open up the leaflet of the bulletin. Once you get there, if you could please rise for the honoring of the public reading of God's Word this morning. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, I'll be reading from the ESV translation of the Bible this morning. We read, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So reads God's infallible and errant and holy written word. Please be seated, church. So for many of you who have been here week after week, you know what I'm going to open up with that it's important for us to understand why these things have been recorded for us. Why did John the Apostle pen this gospel? And we find that in John chapter 20, verse 31. The reason being this, that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now some of you are like, Pastor, you say that every week that we've been in John. Yes, I do. And I'm hoping it's going to be ingrained in your mind as you open the book of John that you know why it was recorded. That you might believe in Christ. And in believing in Him, you might have eternal life. So what is the context of our passage this morning? It is a wedding. Now, what just happened preceding this? Jesus had just started His public ministry. This is the first week of his public ministry. As a matter of fact, as we'll look at, as we study this passage this morning, most likely the last day of that first week. 
And where does he go? Does he go into the temple? Does he go amongst the religious and the righteous? No, he goes to a wedding. This is his ministry. This is his opening ministry. He goes to a wedding. He now has five disciples that are following him, and he shows up to this wedding that he's been invited to. I want you to stop and think, where do we expect, or where would we expect Jesus to go? See, many of us think like Christianity or Jesus is a Sunday thing. It's about church on Sunday only. But it's about every aspect of life. Whatever we do, wherever we go, that's about Christ. And here there's a wedding. There are common folk doing common things. And Jesus is there amongst the people. That is our setting. Now, for those of you that have anything to do with a wedding before, whether you were a planner or a participant, you know a lot goes into putting forward a wedding. For most weddings. Some people say, let's make it real simple and not do anything and just go say, I do and I do. But for many, it is a big deal. And a lot of planning goes into it. And along with that planning comes a lot of stress. Along with that planning comes a lot of money needed. Along with that planning comes a lot of time and energy needed. And why? Why do people invest all that to plan a wedding? Because they care about being perfect. They want it to be perfect. They want it to be a great day of celebration. They want everybody to enjoy that day. But they care about a lot of things. They care about what the bridal party is wearing. They care about what the people will be eating and drinking. There's a lot of concern that goes into the day. Where will it be located? What will be the decorations? What will be the music? What will be the festivities? Those of you, again, that have helped plan a wedding, there are tons of aspects. I'm just touching the surface of it. There's so much that goes into because the wedding day is a big deal. Well, it may have been even a bigger deal in Jesus' day. The wedding celebration lasted up to a week. It wasn't just one day that you came and you watched a ceremony and you celebrated and it was done. It would last up to a week. And it was the most celebrated, grandest experience in life for them. Especially amongst the poor, because one of the traditions is the bride and groom would be paraded throughout the city with crowns on as though they were king and queen. For somebody who had nothing, that was a glorious day. To be paraded through the city, so all the community would come out and see and celebrate what was going on. It was a grand day. All the community being involved in the celebration. But part of that celebration would be feasting. I know Pastor Manny during, during the announcement talked about food a whole lot. Food's not only important today, it's been important a long time. People enjoyed coming together and feasting together. And it was a big part of the festivities. But what was also important, actually what was central and essential, was wine. Wine was essential. It was an essential part because in the Jewish culture, wine symbolized joy, exhilaration, celebration. That was the symbolism of wine. It was not to symbolize drunkenness. It was a symbol of joy, a symbol of celebration. And for wine to run out at a wedding was a huge deal. 
For some of us in our context, we go, no big deal. Drink something else. What's the big deal? Why is Mary going crazy here going, the wine has run out? Because it was a huge deal. It was a social disgrace that would bring humiliation upon the bridegroom and the bride and the bridegroom's family. It was a stigma they would carry with them forever. So we have to put that in as we look at this and think about that background. This is a big deal. It's no little event that the wine runs out. This is why we see the frantic response of Mary. Because it's an issue. The celebration is going to be ruined. And there's going to be this thing that's attached to this bride and groom forevermore if something doesn't take place. So let's dive into our study this morning. We're going to look at six parts this morning. If you're taking notes, we'll look at, and we're going to do alliteration with S's this morning. We're going to look at the setting in verses 1 and 2, the situation in verses 3 and 4, the submission in verse 5, the substitution in verses 6 through 8, the supremacy in verses 9 and 10, and lastly, the significance, verse 11. So let's go ahead and start off with the setting this morning, looking in your Bibles at verses 1 and 2 in John chapter 2. We read that it's on the third day that there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Everybody got the setting. There's a wedding. Jesus' mother's there. Jesus is invited as well with his disciples. But we also notice as John opens up, he says, on the third day. He makes some significance about the timing of this. Well, for those of you that have been with us and you studied through John chapter 1, we kept seeing the next day, the next day. He was showing the timing of this first week of Jesus' ministry. In your Bible, look back to verse 29. You'll see it refers to the next day. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you'll recall, that's John the, Baptist, uh, John the Baptist announcing to all those there, Behold the Lamb of God. But you'll notice he writes the next day. So that is day two, the next day. We'll see in verse 35, you keep going in your Bible down to verse 35, the next day. See it again? That is now day three. Go down to verse 43, you'll see the next day. That is day four. And now we see he writes on the third day. The third day from that last event would make it the seventh day. This is the last day of the week of Jesus' first week of ministry. And we find him again at a wedding. This is how he's fulfilling his ministry. At a wedding. This is the setting. And I want to challenge your thinking as I did in the introduction about where we would expect to find Jesus. Jesus' ministry has begun. Where is he to go? Think about it. Where would you expect him? Answer that own question. What was he doing attending a wedding? Didn't he have business to be done? Wasn't he busy about his father's business? What was he doing at this wedding? Shouldn't he be in the temple teaching or something? Jesus was living life with his five disciples. He was living amongst them and amongst the people so that the people would see and know who he was. Church, that is so big because now as Christians, he is living through us. And we're to be out amongst the common folks. You know, as churchgoers, we like to get together with church members and only be us. 
But what do we see Jesus do? He goes out amongst the people. He goes out amongst them to show them and demonstrate to them who he is. And now we're called as well to go and do the same. So let's talk about the situation. So we got the setting. He's at a wedding. But what goes on at this wedding? We see in verse 3, when the wine ran out. There's an issue. The wine ran out. And when the wine ran out, what happens? The mother of Jesus goes to him. They have no wine. This is interesting. Well, first we know, as I said in the introduction, it's a big deal for that wine to run out. And if you have ever been in charge of anything that you're overseeing, that all the details need to go according to plan, and something doesn't go according to plan, you become to get a little frazzled and frantic. And you seek to reconcile and fix it however you can. Mary, we see from here and later giving a notice to the servants, has some type of charge where she's overseeing something. And in her frantic response, there is no wine. She goes to Jesus. But she doesn't just go to Jesus. The statement she makes to Jesus is one that she says with expectation. She's not just informing him, oh, by the way, Jesus, the wine has run out. There's no wine. She's coming to him, bringing this concern to him that they have no wine in expectation that he'll do something. Do something. There is no wine. She needs to oversee all goes well. That the celebration continues. That there's not this social disgrace upon the bride and groom. But what's interesting is when she goes to Jesus, she goes with expectation he will do something. I want you to stop and think, why the expectation? Why does Mary go to Jesus with expectation? He just started his ministry. What's going on? She knows, I heard someone say she knows something. Perhaps now she sees her son shows up with disciples and thinks, oh, now it's begun. He now has disciples. Maybe now is the time. And you know, Mary wasn't completely in the dark about who Jesus was. First of all, if you're a lady in here and you get pregnant without ever having intercourse with a man, you know something supernatural is going on. Okay, so there's the first clue. The second one is she also had an angel appear to her and speak to her. There's a big second clue. If you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33, we see the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, ladies, I know a lot of you in here have had children. I'm not sure if you've ever had a witness of an angel coming to you and telling you things like that. I'm going to guess the answer is no. This is very unique, and it's very special. Mary heard these things, and we also read just a little bit later in Luke's Gospel in verse 19 of chapter 2 that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Well, here we are many years later. Thirty years later, we're now seeing Jesus has disciples. Maybe now's the time. You know, the crazy thing this morning is we're going to read that this is the first of his signs. That means throughout his upbringing, there was none of that. 
There was none of these miracles being performed. This is the first one. And Mary comes expectantly to Jesus. And what do you think she wanted? Wine. Do something. The wine is gone. Fix the problem is what she's asking him. There is no more wine. She wanted help. Figure it out, Jesus. Do something. Get more wine. You can do it. Did she get the verbal answer she was looking for? She does not get the verbal answer she's looking for. Look at me with verse 4, John chapter 2. Jesus says to her, she comes frantic. She's like, there's no wine. She comes expectantly and he goes, woman. Now wait a minute, there's a transfer of words. No longer is a mother, it's now woman. He's not being impolite. This word wasn't an impolite word. It was like saying ma'am. Ma'am. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In the Greek, these words literally mean, Jesus says, what is that to you and to me? What is that? He goes, my hour has not yet come. In other words, Jesus is reiterating to his mother that he is living to, uh, by a heavenly calendar, a heavenly timeline, that everything has already been orchestrated on how it's to play out. And when he speaks that his hour has not yet come, he's speaking of the day of his glorification through his death and resurrection. It was not going to occur that day. That day, Jesus was not going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. He says, it is not my hour. He informs his mom on his last day of his first week of ministry, my hour has not yet come. So now what? That's definitely not the answer she was looking for. She wasn't looking for him to say, well, what does that concern me for? My hour hasn't come yet. She was looking for him to do something. Find some wine, do something, just fix the problem. Instead, he says, my hour hasn't come. This is interesting because people often say, you know, I pray and I ask God and, and then nothing happens, so I just stop. No, you keep asking, you keep praying, you keep knocking. And look what Mary does. She doesn't stop, but she persists. Right after she hears what Jesus says, look at the next part, verse 5. We're going to see the submission. In verse 5, Mary turns to the servants. And look what she says. Do whatever he tells you. What had he just said to Mary? What does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. And Mary doesn't stop. She knows he can do something. And she goes, oh, you guys, whatever he says, do it. Jesus didn't tell her, well, I'm about to go do something. You need to get some people to help. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. It's interesting because John started this gospel talking about a man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came on the scene to do one thing, to point to Jesus. And here we see Mary doing the exact same thing. She points to Jesus. Whatever he says, submit to it. Whatever he says, do it. You know, it's interesting. This is the last recorded words of Jesus' mother. Read them again. Do whatever he tells you the final words do whatever he tells you do whatever who tells you jesus basically mary's pointing to christ and saying listen to him you know that's interesting because we have those who praise and elevate mary and they worship mary but mary's not a god jesus is god 
And Mary points to Jesus as God and says, do whatever he says. We are to submit to every word of Christ. He is God. Mary, that's the last word. Do what he says. Put that in there and hold on to that. Do whatever Jesus says. I want you to think about that for a moment. Now, as we go through here, one of the things we're going to be looking at is the difference between religious acts and those that are truly spiritual, those that have been generated by God within us, a transformation from the inside outward. And when that transformation takes place, our obedience is not to the rituals. Our obedience is to the one who transformed us, to Jesus, to what he said, to what he's commanded. So let's continue and look at the substitution this morning. The substitution, looking at verses 6 through 8. We read, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. Okay, so stop real quick. Examine what is going on. What does Jesus ask for? What does he say to do? He refers to these stone jars. And these stone jars have a purpose. Therefore, a purification ritual that's done by the Jews to come and wash themselves and to wash any plates and bowls and anything else, that they were making it clean on the outside. Some of you remember Jesus' addresses said, no, it's what's on the inside that matters, not what's on the outside. But this was the ritual that would go on. We read in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. This was a spiritual thing that they thought they were doing for cleanliness, that somehow washing the outside and making it clean made them clean as well. Something that could never make them clean. It was a ritual they went through. So here at the wedding, Mary says, do whatever he says. And Jesus looks over and sees there's these six stone jars, knowing exactly what they're used for, this purification ritual. And we read how big these are. There's about 120 to 180 gallons that would fill the total of these six jars. That is a lot of liquid. And most likely at this point, many of them were empty. They had been used at the festivities. But Jesus commands these servants, which, by the way, when we look at this in Greek, doesn't mean they were slaves. They're like the helpers, those at the wedding that were helping out. He commands them, and he tells them to go and to fill the jars with water. There's significance here why Jesus picks these jars. We're going to unravel this this morning and see why. But Mary's commanded, do whatever he says. And what do they do? All right, we're going to go, and they do exactly what he said. They go, and now that they fill them, it says they fill them to the brim. Nothing else can be added in there. They are filled to the brim to capacity with water. Okay, keep in mind, 
These are typically used for the purification rituals. Okay, that's what's going on. Jesus says, fill those up. But look at verse 8. Jesus commands the helpers to draw out some and take it to the master of the feast, and they do. Stop there. What? I'm a helper at the wedding? I fill this thing up with water? And now Jesus is telling me to take some out and take it to the master of the feast? The one who's overseeing all this? What would I assume he's going to taste? Water, right? We just filled it with water. And yet it's interesting. They do as they were told. Just as Mary said, do whatever he tells you, even though logically it doesn't make sense, they do it. And we know from the next verses that the master of the feast tasted what was not water, but was actually very, very, very good wine. So what's going on? Jesus had just transformed water into wine. Yet he used something very specific, some symbolism of going to these stone jars that used to be used, or excuse me, that were used in their purification process. Jesus is communicating something else. In addition to the miracle, he's communicating something else. Water being turned into wine. Taking an old, dead, religious purification rite and now transforming it. Transformation is taking place. Let me read this to you and it might bring it together. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, it says, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Anybody know what was in the cup? It's wine. So he takes a cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gives it to them, and he says, drink of it, all of you. And look what he says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, through this miracle, is showing how the old covenant will be replaced by the new one, that those stone jars that represented a dead, lifeless religion would now be transformed into newness, into abundant life. The law that no one could keep, neither can we, the law was now fulfilled in Christ. And the penalty for breaking the law, the penalty for breaking the law would now be paid by Christ. He would be the substitute, that he would die in our place, that his death would satisfy God's righteous wrath that was being stored up for us, that it would be poured out upon Jesus. A whole lot of symbolism going on here. Taking something that was old and showing it will become new. Taking these old ritual rites and instead saying, it's going to be new in my blood. There will be newness of life. It's no longer trying to uphold and do these old things that no man could do perfectly, but instead there would be grace that comes through Jesus Christ. There would be forgiveness of sins that would come through Jesus Christ. Church, I want to hold there for a second because there are people in this room that are still trying to go about life thinking, if I just do enough good, maybe God will accept me. And they'll use words like, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to do better than I did yesterday. They'll even say, I'm trying to be a better Christian. And they're losing what has already taken place for the Christian. That for the Christian, we are saved. 
for the Christian, the penalty for our sin has been paid. And now grace has been poured out upon us. That it's not about performance, it's about our position in Christ. But yet there are those who have that knowledge but still say, I think I can make it to heaven if I just do well. If my good can outweigh my bad, then maybe God will accept me. Then I ask you this, my friend, if that is you, then why would Christ have to die? If there was any other way, why would Jesus Christ have to die? The answer is because there is no other way. He is the only way. And He would have to give His life as a substitute for you. That He would pay the penalty on your behalf, being the only way to God. But not only is the only way, we'll see in the next couple of verses about the supremacy. Far greater than anything else. In verses 9 and 10, of John chapter 2, we read that when the master of the feast tasted the water that now has become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, here the miracle unfolds, and it's amazing. Think about what he just said. He said, typically people keep, do the best wine first, then the poor wine later. Why? Because once people have had some, their tasting is getting a little, they're getting maybe a little enumerated, and they don't know what they're tasting later. But now we have the best wine. We've got the best stuff. You see, Jesus, when Jesus acts, he's far superior than any other. Everything he does is far superior than any other. Jesus is not just adequate. He is the best. You know, there are those who think, I'm just going to add Jesus to my life. I'm going to just tack him on with everything else. You're missing it. He's not an addition. He is the only one. He's sufficient. And he is the best. Not only did he turn water into wine, but he made an abundance of the best wine. It's important to understand that. Not only when Mary says, they're out of wine, expecting him to do something, he far exceeds expectation. His works are both majestic and excellent, always exceeding what we believe we need. We read what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, the beginning of verse 20. He says, now to him, Christ, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. Christian, do you believe that this morning? that your Jesus can do far more abundantly than you could ever ask or think. He knows everything. His ways are perfect. His thoughts are perfect. Lord willing, as we continue through our study in John, we will read later about a Samaritan woman at a well that Jesus has an interaction with. The woman comes to the well because she is in need of water. That's what she's come for. And look what Jesus says to her in John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. As a matter of fact, I'm thirsty right now. I'm going to drink of this water, and I'll be thirsty again from this water. But, Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's he speaking of? He's speaking of the same thing that's going on in this room and some of you this morning. That some of you are thirsting for more in this life. You know that this is not it. There's got to be something else. There is nothing that satiates you, nothing that brings you contentment, nothing that brings you complete joy and peace in this life. There's got to be something else. This is not doing it. You think, I've lived this life, I've done what I thought I can do, and it's not there, it's empty. This is what Jesus is speaking of. He goes, you've gone, you've thirsted, you've tasted, you've done all these other things, but you need to come to me and taste of me. Jesus, my friend, is the answer to that thirst, to that craving. Jesus is the answer. For those of you that have tasted and know that he is good, you know exactly what we speak of this morning. That throughout your life, you went from one thing to the next, one vice after the next vice, to try to find something that would bring you contentment and peace in life. And it, that didn't do it. That didn't do it. And what was occurring the whole time? Destruction. Destruction. And Jesus comes upon the scene 2,000 years ago and says, I am the answer. No more of that stuff. Come to me and you will never thirst again. And for some of you in this room this morning, that is what he's calling out to you this morning, is to come to him. To come and taste. To come and see. There's great significance behind this. And we see it in verse 11. Verse 11, we see this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The first thing we see is this is the first of his signs. As we study through the book of John, he's going to record seven major signs, but not nearly all that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, towards the end of this gospel, we read in John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, now Jesus did many other signs. In this gospel, he'll record seven major signs. But he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then just a little bit later in the gospel, he writes why. In John chapter 21, verse 25, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus was active all the time. Jesus was active in his ministry, doing things all the time. But John says, I recorded these seven things that you might believe. So what's the significance about this sign? What's the significance about water being turned into wine? Well, for starters, exactly what John penned in verse 11. It manifested Jesus' glory. For the first time since he's come to earth, he's revealed his deity by performing a miracle. First time. He is God. It is seen by witnesses. And look at the result. It says his disciples believed. Everybody wondering what happened there? Jesus came in and he said, follow me. These guys followed him. They had once heard, this is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now they have seen. This is God. And they believe. There is an effect. It also shows, this miracle does, that Jesus is active. He is active in every part of life. 
Do you know you can pray at home? Do you know you can pray in your car and access the throne of God? You don't have to come to church on Sunday earlier just to pray, but you can do that at home. I'm not saying you can't come to church. Of course, you're always welcome to come here and pray. But Jesus is everywhere. He not only gathers on, on Sunday with us, but wherever we are, he is. Jesus is present. He's part of our life everywhere. The times that you feel abandoned and think, where is God? He is there. God, why are you far off? He's not. He's near. Christ is there. It's also important for us to look at this miracle that he performed it amongst the common folks. He wasn't in the temple and he wasn't amongst religious people. There's this misnomer that some people think, well, I just have to clean up my life before I come and look at Christ. And before I come to follow Jesus, i got to clean things up. No. You need to just turn to him. Turn to him. There is no 12-step program. It's a one-step program. Turn to Christ. Turn to him. Repent. Turn to him. One step. This miracle also shows us that Jesus not only answers when we cry out to him, but he does so perfectly. That his ways and his thoughts are far superior than ours. That he does answer prayer, but he answers according to his perfect will, which is much better than ours. Much better than ours. It also shows that Jesus came to put an end to cold, lifeless religion. He came to replace that cold, lifeless religion with joy and peace in his name. Like, I don't care how much money you strive for, you can't buy peace. Especially peace with God. There's no amount of money you can put in a little tray that God's going to go, oh, okay, now you're forgiven because you just gave money. It doesn't work like that. What was so costly was the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood was shed so that we might have forgiveness in his name. That we no longer have to live by all the rituals, but we now live in Christ. That we now have grace poured out upon us. We also see that he came so that those who continually thirst would thirst no more. That they would no longer thirst again looking for the next thing, but that Christ would satisfy them. That Christ is enough. That him doing this miracle demonstrates he is deity and those who believe in him would have eternal life. This miracle has so much significance. Yes, he transformed water into wine. But his main mission was far greater than that. It wasn't about water into wine. It was about sinners into saints. That was the mission. That he would come and seek and save the lost. Of which many of us, that was us at one time, and for some of us, it still is this morning. That you still haven't turned to him in faith and in repentance. That's the mission. To come and turn a sinner into a saint. So the question for you this morning, has this miraculous transformation taken place in your life? This is a you question, you personally. Has there been transformation? Or are you still striving, hoping that maybe you could be good enough? And I'll tell you this morning, stop. Because you can't be good enough. You need Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God. He's the only way. And I plead with you this morning, turn to Christ. 
Don't play with the what ifs and, and maybe I'll be good enough. This morning, the offer comes out to you to turn to Jesus, to receive His grace, to receive what He has done on the cross for you, that you too would have eternal life. This morning, I plead, turn from your sins, from living your way, and turn to Christ. And I understand you don't know exactly all that means, but you know what it means to turn from living your way and to turn to God. I need to do something different, drastically different. And the amazing thing is this morning, the only way that all makes sense is if God is working in you. If God has given you spiritual eyes to see spiritual things. And if He's doing that this morning, I urge you, turn to Him. Turn to Him. Receive Him. Submit to Him. Follow Him. And transformation will take place. Just as that wine was came out of water, so you too, from a sinner to a saint. From one who doesn't know what the future holds to one who knows exactly what the future holds. For us in here this morning who have made that decision, what a glorious thing. You know exactly what I speak about this morning. And together we praise God for transformation. We praise God for opening our eyes, allowing us to see those things, enabling us to turn to Him in faith and repentance. And we bring Him glory and honor. And as we go about it, we listen to those final words that Mary had said, do whatever He says. Great advice. We're to follow Jesus. We're to follow His commands. We're to live for His glory. Church, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we look this morning at a text that we could simply look at and say, well, water was turned into wine. God, when we slow down and see the miracle that was performed, it's far greater than water being turned to wine. But the mission of Jesus, as he opens up his ministry here, was to go and transform sinners into saints. Father, this morning, many of us in this room, even right now in our hearts before you, we praise you and thank you for that work you've done in us. That you have transformed us, that you have made us new in Christ. That you've given us a new heart with new desires. That, Father, you are our peace and our joy. Father, I pray for those in this room this morning that perhaps this morning are now wrestling with this. That they've heard that Jesus is the way. That those who come unto Him will never thirst again, but will have eternal life. Father, I pray through the power of Your Spirit that You would draw that man or woman unto Yourself this morning. That they would turn to You in faith and repentance this morning. That they would seek after You. That, Father, there would be a cosmic exchange. That it would no longer be them, but it would be Christ in them that now they would be empowered to live a life pleasing in your sight. Father, for many, they've tried to get better, they've tried to do better, and they continue to fail. But God, we know the moment they turn in faith and trust and repentance that you will grant them your spirit, filling them with your spirit, to empower them to live a life that's pleasing in your sight. Oh God, you are good. We pray you would do this and that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name.